Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to episode seven of Out with Susie Ruffle. Uh, it's been another brilliant week of correspondence to the show, so thank you so much to everyone who's got in touch and shared their story. If you want to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. When I was working out what this podcast would be, I imagined this bit at the top of the show would be a chit chat about what I'd been up to that week, tour shows or experiences I'd had in the outside world. Now, of course, we're going into week eight of lockdown, and I fear my opening bit isn't quite as exciting as I hoped it might be. And it's the same for a lot of us, I suppose. What I have done this week is make a really good pasta sauce. I've done about 30 miles on my bicycle, and I've realized that mine and my partner's working lives are very, very different. She works in finance, and earlier this week, she was on back-to-back calls about what was going to happen to the UK economy post the pandemic, while I was working out if I could roller skate and film on my iPhone at the same time. Very different skills. Right, let's get on with the show and get on with our listener correspondence. First up, here is one from a listener who wanted to remain anonymous. Thank you for this podcast. I look forward to every episode. It's a little ray of sunshine during the pandemic. I spent my entire life having what your former guest, Emma Kennedy, referred to as lovely, intense friendships with my female friends. I always had one best friend who I clearly cared more than she cared for me. And in the end, the friendship ended in a dramatic fashion with my heart being broken and me thinking I wasn't worthy of a close friendship. Growing up in the suburbs of Ontario, Canada in the 90s, there wasn't much queer representation, especially lesbian representation. The only lesbian I knew of was Ellen. And my father, who grew up in a very religious and homophobic country of Jamaica, didn't want me to watch her show because it would make me gay. I had crushes on all the boy band members throughout elementary and high school, but was always in love with my best friend at the time. I didn't date because boys weren't interested in me. So I took that as another piece of evidence that not only was I not worthy of a close friendship, I also wasn't worthy of a boyfriend and love. I graduated high school without so much of having my first kiss. Early in my university career, my mother, who was my best friend and an amazing woman, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She suffered for the next 10 years as my responsibilities as her caregiver became ever greater. My entire 20s was taken over by her illness and I put my romantic life on the back burner. She passed away when I was 30. At that point, I was so lost, I didn't know who I was without her. After two years of intense grief, I was finally able to start dating. I went on dates, but never more than three because they weren't interested in seeing me anymore. When I finally had my first kiss at 33, it was exciting because I was finally kissing, but it was also kind of boring. Around this time, I'd made friends with a lesbian at work. She and her girlfriend took me to lots of queer events and showed me that queer love between women was possible. At 34, I slept with a man for the first time and immediately realised I wanted to be with women. After several months of anxiety and long discussions with my lesbian friends about what this all meant, I decided to come out to my dad. I was too nervous to say anything, so he sat in his room watching Rachel Maddow on CNN. He casually mentioned that he liked Rachel and Ellen. This seemed like a stark change from his attitudes when I was a child, like he was giving me an opening to come out. I told him I was bisexual. He said he'd figured it out as I'd never brought any boys home and said that he still loved me. A month later, I kissed a woman for the first time. It was not boring. 
I felt like my entire body was on fire and realized that I was a lesbian. I felt a sense of calm in my identity for the first time in my life because I finally knew who I was. I casually told my dad that I was actually a lesbian and not bisexual. He accepted it and again told me how much he likes Rachel Maddow. Six months later, my dad told his religious siblings that I was gay. The same night, my uncle called me to tell me that he loved me and accepted me for who I am. I've dated many people since I came out and finally realised there isn't anything wrong with me. That it wasn't that I wasn't worthy of close friends or love. I'm just gay and I didn't know it. I'm 36 now and while I'm still single, I have hope for the future as it is full of rainbows. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really important to highlight stories, all kinds of stories and people coming out, maybe not in their teens and 20s. And yeah, what a lovely story to share. Thank you so much. Your dad sounds brilliant and I'm sending lots of love to Canada. Okay, the second um, story that I wanted to share this week is from an ally. I think it's really important to have allies. The allies in my life have always been a great comfort to me. And also it's nice to give them a little shout out. So here is one from an ally who didn't say whether they wanted their name to be uh, read out. So I'm leaving it. uh, I'm leaving it anonymous, but you know who you are. And thank you for sharing this. Firstly, I'm a huge fan of yours and Tom's stand up. Uh, They're talking about uh, Tom Allen, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Um, Brilliant episode. If you haven't heard it yet, make sure you do. And, And he and I also have a podcast together called Like Minded Friends. Okay, so firstly, I'm a huge fan of yours and Tom's stand-up, catching you both on TV. I'm a supporter of the LGBTQ plus community, mainly due to the inequality that still exists throughout our society. I'm a 49-year-old mum of an 11-year-old, married and straight. I was a secondary school drama teacher for 12 years, and I was thankful of having a handful of students feel brave enough to come out to me. Being supportive is so important. The interview with Tom so resonated with me and reminded me of a musician friend once starting a conversation with me saying, I have something to tell you, but I'm afraid you'll hate me. It took him a month to say it out loud. I felt so blessed that he had chosen to tell me. I currently teach PHSE in a primary school and I'm happy that the new RSE curriculum allows a conversation to happen for year four upwards to feel comfortable, whatever their sexuality. Difference is healthy. Healthy relationships are the core of a better society. Challenging homophobia is present, current and necessary. Your podcast is necessary. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I I like to think, I don't know if it's necessary, but I'm delighted that some people think it is. And I'm I'm really chuffed at how many people are getting in touch, how many people are enjoying the show. Um, Please do get in touch if you want to share your story. Share this podcast with your friends, rate it and review it. I know I say it every week, it's very boring, but it really helps other people find the podcast Um, so thank you very much for sending that in and I think that uh, your students are incredibly lucky to have had you as a teacher okay on with today's interview today it's Sophie Duca I loved talking to her Um, let's go to that conversation now I'm very excited about today's guest who is an extremely exciting stand-up comedian and a friend of mine. I think we might have met in a Guilty Pleasures dance tent at the Latitude Festival about six years ago, dancing to some disco bangers. I think she's brilliant, and I know that you will too. Uh, But don't just take my word for it. Here's what the press have had to say. An excellent debut from a skillful and exciting young comedian. This show has everything you could ask for. A hilarious and heartfelt celebration of self. This astute political analysis is buoyed by wordplay, shrewd storytelling and pop culture hot takes. She is extremely funny. Sophie has also been seen on Mock the Week, 8 Out of 10 Cats, Roast Battle, Frankie Boyle's New World Order and many others. Her debut show Venus was nominated for Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe last year and it received more stars than you can shake a stick at. Welcome to the show, Sophie Duca. Oh my God, sis! That made my heart sing. It was That's incredible. good. Thank you. Well, it's meant to. I only have I only have people on the podcast that I think are brilliant and whose whose stories I want to share. So it's um it's nice to have you on. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm in lockdown. I'm in a house with a cat that is not my own. That's how okay. I'm doing. It's good. And are you staying by yourself? I'm by myself. I've been by myself for about three weeks since my flatmate uh, had to flee the country she didn't flee she took a plane she she was very leisurely about it by all accounts okay but she went to see some family she's from abroad 
So okay. I'm, I'm cat sitting for her. And how are you finding it being by yourself? You know what? I thought I am so socially needy. I'm going to absolutely hate this. And it is the best thing that has ever happened to me. Really? Uh, it is sometimes deeply lonely, which is quite hard. But I always feel like I need to be around people, even if I'm not doing anything. Like I want to be around people, want to see people, want to learn things. And I think after the initial breaking the seal, I'm just like, it's, it's great. I think it'll go in phases and I'll get lonely again. But for now, it's really nice to be like, it's just me and the cat. That's great. Putting no expectation on yourself and just looking after you. I mean, I think that's we all, all that we can really do during this. Yeah. Because it's so weird. It's so weird. And even if like lots of people have really big things going on because of it or at the same time as it. Uh, and I, some people are like, I'm, I'm fine, but I don't think anyone is fine. Like everyone's got stuff that they're processing or that's coming through or that is happening or it's making them feel a certain type of way. And I think you just have to be like, this is how I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to sit here with a cat and just be fine. And that's, yeah, sometimes that's enough. I think that's great advice. It's not an advice podcast, but I think you've just given some absolutely blinding yeah, advice. If you don't have a cat, you're fucked. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I also have a cat because uh, I'm a cliche. So um, I read you out some quotes and I know sometimes people feel weird about that. I'm also not 100% into like the press writing stuff and everybody believing what they say. But I mean, your first show, you were people were constantly telling you how, how brilliant and hilarious you were and how you took on big topics. That's sort of the onstage version of Sophie how would you describe yourself when you're just being you oh I think offstage me is like a little bit like reflective mm-hmm. like a little bit like watchy there are lots of comics that I think are very like gregarious and like fun like always like laughing like always on all the time and then I think I like to like watch for a little while and then come up with something like zippy yes like I'm like a 16th century courtier <laughs> Having had drinks with you, I would, I would stand by that. I think yeah. that you, you wait and choose the moment and then say something very funny. Yeah, I'm just sort of like dip, take a little sip of my tea, or except it's probably not tea, it's probably whiskey. But yeah, I think <laughs> I like to just like watch stuff because I think I do get really excited by people. But my time on stage is the time to be like, hey, here's all the stuff I've discovered. Aren't we all silly? Or like infuriating and stuff. And I think in my life, because I used to be very shy, very awkward, um, I think I've got used to being a sort of watcher. So while I think people who don't know me very well are like, she's a big old extrovert because she's doing comedy. I think I I think I think li- I like to observe. That makes perfect sense to me because I feel like I'm quite similar. I think people, when you do a job like this, people often assume that you're the most confident person at a party. But actually at a party, I'm like, uh, I've, I've come to, should I have worn this? Oh, I, I don't know what my hair's doing. Oh, there's a person that I vaguely know. Do they want to talk to me? Oh, they're smiling. I should go and say hello. They weren't smiling at me. Like I, I sort of overthink everything. Well, I will say when I when in the guilty pleasures dance tent, I feel <laughs> like you were having the time of your life. Hey, listen, I remember you, you, we have a mutual friend called Ivo. He introduced you. I was a bit drunk. We we went straight in for a hug. That's how the friendship started. And that is not a bad thing, as long as everyone is consenting to that hug. So you said just a minute ago that you were shy and awkward as a younger person. Let's start way back at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in, well, I grew up mainly in London. I was born in London, Edgware General Hospital. But at the age of about four, my parents were like, oh, we're going to go on a lovely holiday to Ghana, where my dad is from. And I was mm-hmm. like, great, this sounds fantastic. And then I ended up living with my grandmother in Ghana for two years. So they were like, see ya. Um, wow. Yes. Pretty traumatic. I mean, <laughs> someone said this to me when I was telling the story. I was like, they were like, wow, that's pretty traumatic. And I was like, no, I don't. Think-. And I was like, oh, no, I think it was actually. I mean, it was lovely in that I was like with family and I was very loved and stuff. And the reason mm-hmm. that my parents did it is that they were both immigrants and they were going like to work and like, I guess, make a better life for us. But um, yeah. So I was like, I had loads of cousins. I was very loved. But I think having such a big culture shock and also being separated from your parents, because I only saw them at like when they came to visit and on holidays and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like a really big change for a little girl. Do you have memories of Ghana? That's where my first memories are from. Oh, really? I mean, like I kind of remember like pictures that have been taken, but I properly remember things from when I was about four in Ghana. Okay. And so did you start school there? Uh, I remember I did year one in Ghana. 
Right. And then year three, because I skipped a year, uh, but then I had to do it again when I came back because they were like, you're tiny. (laughs) 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 You're tiny. And I was like, but I can tell the time. And they were like, shut up, Matilda, get back into year three. (laughs) And to be fair, it was quite hard. Um, So yeah, I did year three twice. Never been in year two. I don't know if there's something everyone gets told when they're in year two, but... Oh, you didn't hear the thing... I, I'll text you later okay, um, cool. and, and make sure that you're across everything that happens in year two. <laughs> yeah. So what were you like as a child? I read in an article that you wrote that you were a real bookworm. Yeah. Was that from a young age? Yes. I apparently used to like go up to, like members of the family used to have to enter the house really quietly because if I knew there was someone coming into the house, I'd be like, read to me. And they'd have to read to me. I mean, I think that's adorable. I don't, but I think it's so adorable. That they were like, just come like you're just I don't know maybe delivering a package. You don't need to read to our child. <laughs> so, just come in, install I don't know the washing machine, and you don't have to read to her. Um, so yeah, I was always really really loved reading. Used to just like devour books, like chain smoking books, read all the time. Um, and I was quite I think quite independent. I think I once went for a walk when we were living in Golders Green. We moved around quite a lot when I was in when I was a kid, and we were in uh, Golders Green, and I was like. I'm just gonna go for a walk and so just like left the house um and just went for a walk by myself but which was terrifying for my mother but I imagine that the two years in Ghana would have had something to do with that sort of independent spirit yeah I think I I got used to like I have I have a little brother I shouldn't pretend he doesn't exist I have a little brother but he was two like he's three years younger than me so he was too young to be at all useful Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> to me, I also got <laughs> malaria pretty soon after getting to Ghana. I've had malaria okay. three times. What? Okay, we need to pause. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're getting through this at, at breakneck speed, and I feel like I need to know more. So, mm-hmm. you go to Ghana, you get malaria. Yes, terrifying. Are your mum and dad there at the time, or is your nan, your grandma, looking after you? My grandma's looking after me. I remember, I remember having malaria, and I was in the living room. My my grandmother also had like a she had like a little nursery school at the time. It's now like a nursery and primary school. Oh, um, wow. But she had like she like had like a couple of teachers. And they would like teach kids in the house. So like it was a very lots of people, lots of kids and stuff. I had malaria, so I sort of had like a sick bed where the most people could see me, which was like in a sort of like living room office space. I'm sort of seeing you as Beth in Little Women. Just yes. people around you and you reading in your bed. Is that yeah, right? That is absolutely correct. That okay, is correct. <laughs> just be sort of like sickly lying there. I just didn't, we had, there was like re- malaria medicine's really gross. Like there's no, I still don't think, unless no one's told me, that's what they tell you in year two. Uh, there's no vaccine <laughs> for malaria. So we had to take disgusting, uh, horrible malaria medicine. So you, you, you go to Ghana, you get malaria. Sure. Mm. Sure, then fine. you're there for a couple of years, you come back, you go into year three. Did you feel like an outsider because you were like the new kid at the school when you came back to the UK? I think, well, because year three, lots of people start new schools again. So I felt, I didn't feel like, sure, but I did feel weird. Like I was like, this school day is so absurdly long. Right. Okay. It went on till like three. I, I think our school day used to be like shorter, like you'd come home when it was like really hot and like, it just was, it was just so, it just seemed like madness to do a school day from nine till three. And the second day I was like, this is really intense. So I went to uh, a all girls school, even from primary school. Oh, did um, you? Yeah. It was North London Collegiate School. And the nickname was No One Leaves Completely Straight. Just thought I'd get the origin story in there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So you went from the same school from year three all the way through to 16? Yeah. Oh, Wow. So what was teenage Sophie like? Still bookie, but I think I was like, I want to be, I think I got a little bit of sass. I started doing drama and it's like, I think it is a cliche, but it really sort of like boosted my confidence or just like I could express like a sort of like energy and passion, which had just kind of been like repressed when I'd like read in the toilets at short break. So I was just like, oh, I can be really into this thing. And that's kind of what you want in drama. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is what you want in drama. I always got cast as boys, um, despite being quite short. I think at the time I didn't like that. Now I'm like, that's kind of cool because I think I look hot as a boy. <laughs> at the time I was just like, why don't I get forget to be like a leading lady? You know, I don't ever get to be like a damsel. I don't get to be blousy and Bugsy Malone. But I still love drama and 
I think that really like helped me get out of my shell. And so you were, I know that you're, you are super smart. The school that you went to, was it like a, was, is it like a high achieving school? Cause I don't really know schools about in London. Yeah. The I school I went to is very, very intense. I think it right. was like a very academic, uh, private girls school. And it was like, I felt, I think I felt quite different from a lot of the people there because they just had so much money like right okay for a lot of my school my time at school I just felt like I was really poor um and even though I was more confident I never wanted to invite people back to my house because I thought that they would judge me and also I was black but I was just like my house doesn't like it's not nice it does it's only got one floor right did you feel like you fitted in or was there when I was sort of doing all of the research about you, I always wonder on this podcast how to describe people like with regards to their sexuality. Cause I think it's really important that I don't use a word that you don't like or that you don't use, but you use sort of bi-ness and queerness. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I would say that I'm bi and I'm queer. Sure. Exactly. And do you think that you felt some of that queer otherness when you were at school or had you not engaged with those feelings yet? I think that I now when I look back I'm like oh this makes all of the sense but back then I didn't really sort of get it I did Mm -hmm. I definitely did get it when I was at school I think weirdly I don't know if this is the case for other people that were in like single sex education there are some people that are like I'm gay (laughs) I'm definitely gay I'm gonna take all the heat of everyone else even thinking about their sexuality because I can't be any other way at this point. Okay. Um, and I think there were some girls that like, and I don't think it was particularly judgmental, but I think it wasn't at all woke. Okay. When no, I think there are girls now that I either know are queer or probably were queer at the time, but they definitely weren't out. And if you were a lesbian at my school, then I think you'd have to put up with people saying like, very very ignorant things and like uh-huh. like there were no super popular girls that were gay and out at all right it was very much be like super like feminine girly girls bitchy plastics rolling up your skirts yeah if you wanted to be mean girls <laughs> okay and then you went to oxford yes to read english and french yes So what was your time like at Oxford? I think you're the fourth guest on the show. We've had very high achieving guests on the show that went to Oxford. Was it because you went to this sort of very high achieving school? Was it sort of preordained that you would go to Oxford or Cambridge or one of those big impressive unis? I think me going to a big fancy schmancy uni was pretty much set out, though I didn't think it was. I didn't really like I, I feel like I am like now comfortable being like, I'm smart because I've worked really hard for like a lot of my life to like Mm -hmm. jump through whatever hoops people have told me to jump through. But I kind of felt like a bit of an idiot and not really understanding what was going on around me. Like I thought Oxbridge was one uni until like basically year 13. I didn't really know why it would be good. And I think I'd had this like feminist, slightly rebellious like streak instilled in me. So I was like, my mum would be like, I think it's a really good idea for you to apply to Oxford because it's like a massive boys club and everyone knows each other and they'll just like give you jobs based on you having been to Oxford. And I'd say, well, I don't want to go because they'll do, that sounds horrible. I don't want to be part of this greasy club. Yeah. So I was kind of like, it, something inside me was like, this seems like a really horrible, cliquey place that I don't want to be. Uh, then I went to see it and I was like, it's fine. It's not as, it's like it's fine as a town. It's kind of pretty. But I think the main reason that I went to Oxford, I mean, the reason that I gave myself at the time for, I kind of applied to make my like parents happy. Mm-hmm. And between me and applying and getting my results uh, or getting the letter, I'm not sure which happens first because I'm old now. Um, my grandpa, <laughs> my grandfather, my mum's dad was staying with us and he was very ill and he was, uh, yeah, he died, but he'd been, he'd seen my, I don't know, maybe from my mocks. And he just couldn't believe that anyone could have had as results as good as that. He oh, was just really? like, this is, yeah, this is, and he'd visited London. He'd visited London and he'd been to, Oxford. he was like a forester. I don't know why okay. he was there, but maybe he'd done like a course at Oxford or like he'd definitely been around and visited like the colleges and stuff. And he was like so thrilled that I had these like amazing golden ticket results and like it meant so much to him. And I was like, if I've got into this place and I don't go there, 
I'm just like throwing it in the face of literally all of my family even though that's something my family never explicitly made me feel. I remember meeting an uncle and he was like, why are you studying English when you already speak English? Like he just couldn't understand why you do an arty farty subject. And how was your time at Oxford? Because now I think there'll be 18 year olds listening who are very grown up and I get that. But when I look back at myself at 18, I'm like, you were a child. You understand? How did you move to London by yourself? And oh. so how was it when sort of 18 year old Sophie arrived in it's basically where they shoot the Hogwarts Great Hall scene isn't it yes um I did I I made a friend from Norwich and we ran through Christchurch being like it's just like Harry Potter (laughs) (laughs) which I think pissed people off because Christchurch is one of it's basically Slytherin um so good to know yeah Christchurch is Slytherin Wadham where I went is the gay college um sorry doesn't slow down how do you mean the gay college everyone that's there is gay uh I think no one leaves completely straight it was I mean this is the story of your life like if you if you make it if you write an autobiography one day it's I didn't leave completely straight yeah not completely straight um Gordon has a reputation for it had a reputation for being more liberal being like the not queer because nobody would have used that word I think then about a thing but it had a party called queer bop parties at Oxford were called bops because we can't have normal fun uh and queer bop was like a big <laughs> gay party it was like loads of cross-dressing loads of really loads of campness loads of like it was like a big like gay celebration that happened and we also had a music festival so we were like a kind of radical cool college uh with a lot of state school students as opposed to Christchurch which like you don't know drink like calves blood and I don't know chart in Latin right, okay. <laughs> <a> Saturday night <laughs> So I know that you joined the Oxford Imps when you were at Oxford. Is that right? I did. I joined in in my first week. You joined in your first week. So drama was still something that was really loved. Um, But I joined the Oxford Imps partly because I wanted to get involved with anything dramatic at university, but also because I super fancied the head of my SU. Okay. Um, And he said, you should audition. I was like, sure, I will. And I did. But also once I got in, I was like, this is a group of people who don't fit in because improv I don't think has ever been but isn't that cool and that I could be whoever I wanted to be on stage and I didn't have to be myself so I loved improv uh and it was a real it really got me through a lot of the intensity like the way I just jumped from like a really intense school to a Mm -hmm. really intense university although being like if you're 18 and listening to this or like waiting to go to university or start your life you do get a lot of like a lot more freedom Mm. to figure out who you are once you move away from home Oh yeah, it's super exciting, but it, it it's you know it's very scary as well. That, you know those things can coexist. Um, so, what were you like at uni? Were you were you working out that you were quite funny? I I think I worked out that I was quite sharp. I think it was like a protective tool. Like I did a lot of the like sassy replies and like a lot of yeah being quippy. I've kind I've kind of like before this podcast, I was trying to trace like when I came out mm. um, and when all this stuff started being like more explicit rather than just stuff that was happening to me and I think I definitely started doing more hashtag gay shit (laughs) at university but when you say stuff that was happening to you do you mean like stuff that you were thinking about stuff that you were feeling like were you having those sort of queer thoughts or feelings at school was there was there a girl that you were sort of Emma Kennedy on last week's episode described it as lovely intense female friendships Yes, I thought that Which was I how think everyone bang had on. friends. Yes. I thought that was just normal. I don't know if straight girls don't have this, but like in a in a girls' school or any all female environment, I think people are quite intense anyway about who they're friends with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely felt like lots of friendships breaking up or like having strife was like being like that was like my romance that was my teen romance of like kind of having a friend break up not speaking to someone anymore like having offended her like going for loads of sleepovers and then not being able to go back um that was all so visceral and I thought it was just how people were friends with people I think my big queer moment at school was I think I absolutely fell in love with um a girl who played the dentist in the school's production of Little Shop of Horrors. Great. Which is still my favourite musical. Great show. Um, I think possibly the first time I'd ever seen a girl in, I mean, maybe you've seen, I'd seen a girl in drag and not really registered it, but she was in drag, obviously playing the dentist and she was so hot. Oh my God. She was just beautiful. She was a model anyway, a model who literally later ran away to join the circus. 
Wow. Um, I just, she was just incredibly sexy and we're wearing a leather jacket and I was like, this girl is incredible. And how old Um, were you at that point, do you think? I think I would have been like 14, 15 when I like had this crush on her, but I didn't, I think I thought I was, I really clung to the phrase girl crush. Right. Okay. I didn't need to interrogate anything. I was just like, oh, you have crushes and you have girl crushes and it doesn't really matter and I don't need to think too much about what that means. It's fine. Everyone has them. I don't need to process it any more than that. Yeah. It's just a girl crush. Uh, I also, uh, in the way, I think there's a, like a stereotype of like, when you're trying to motivate kids to learn, there's always this inspirational teacher. Um, and I had a really great English teacher in sixth form who was really young and cool. And I definitely was in love with her. Like, I just... I just adored her. And like, if she paid anyone else attention, I would feel super, super jealous. And not in terms of like doing well in English, just in terms of having her attention. Yeah. Just having her like, look at me or like making her laugh. Or, oh God, the angst. Anyway. Those feelings are very real. And I think that lots of straight women have them as well. But I think that when you are queer or gay or bi or however you like to describe yourself, I think those sort of desires to have just a moment of attention from these people that we put on pedestals is so much it's so much bigger there was a girl at my dancing school that I just became I just loved her I just loved her I saw her years later she came to a gig that I wasn't very good at which I mean still sort of plagues me somewhat um but there was just something about her that was just so oh my god magnetic and I would spend my whole lunchtime when we were I'd go dancing all day on a Saturday and the whole lunchtime I would it would just be me playing like a weird game of Tetris where I was trying to get into the group that she was talking to as she was moving around the room oh god and I, I mean I sort of remember it quite fondly because it's kind of adorable but no I completely understand that yeah so you're at Oxford you're now you're going to queer bop yeah, going to queer bot. I dress up as a gay whale. We don't need to look into it. Okay, fine, 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 fine. <laughs> and 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 is this? You, you sort of mentioned that there were gay girls at your school, or queer or, or lesbian women at your school. Was this the first time that you were surrounded by people that like lots of people that identified as non-straight? Yes, okay. I think it was definitely the first time where there was there was like a like a gay night. There is always a gay night. I don't know if this is an Oxford thing, and I'll be very embarrassed if it is but there was a real tendency for guys straight straight guys or probably straight guys I think it's a fine thing to do just to get get off with each other yeah no Um, that happened that happened at my drama school and that that was definitely a thing as well yeah so there was just a sort of like permissiveness like people were like allowed to do stuff and not be questioned on it Mm -hmm. um which was kind of great people just be like I guess this is part of being an adult um (laughs) i guess this is what all the adults are up to everyone's just you know getting back up to night out and like spooning in bed together and like we're all just kind of messy Mm -hmm. messy kids but then i think there were lots of people who were just like no i'm like i'm definitely out and i always found that very intimidating because it's not something that i thought that i could do right okay did you have sort of flings or relationships or were they more you still sort of being in love with someone from afar? I had one, I would say quite significant being in love with someone from afar, but I think in that, I think it was it was with one of my friends. I mm-hmm. definitely really, really fancied her. But I think the way that I dealt with that was just to be quite, like, I don't think I was very nice to her. She was a really nice right. girl. And I'd kind of come to university and um started feeling okay like I can be like a different sort of person and you can realize you're powerful in all sorts of ways and you're having all these sorts of new experiences and I didn't I think the kind of like how challenging it was to really be attracted to someone and that not be compatible with like the person I decided I would be at university meant that we like we're re- we were really good friends we were really close but I think I would sometimes be like a bit mean were you kind of angry with her because she was making you realize these things that you had decided you weren't going to have? I think so. I think, I think I was kind of angry with her. And I think I also didn't think that she would be like, I didn't think it was like possible. And I think like every, I think a lot of people were in love with her. It sounds like your magnetic dancing school, butterfly girl flitting through everything. I think she was just like a generally loved, wonderful girl. And I also adored her but was just kind of I think I think I always felt like I could never be the beautiful girl and I would never be 
I think I got called niche at uni by my uh, best friend at the time. <laughs> oh, I'm pleased to hear that she's not your best friend anymore. Oh, uh, no, quite blunt gay man. Um, but, oh, wait, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to hear he's not your best friend anymore. <laughs> no, he's not. But yeah, I so said I was quite niche and it's just kind of felt crushing to never be that kind of golden, that kind of golden girl. And I think I attached it to the fact that I was like a different color mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time. Like when I was, I, th- I think I was maybe slightly late. Like I don't think I properly like kissed anyone like properly who I was like, I think they like me as well until I was like 15, 16. And I didn't mm-hmm. lose my virginity to a boy until I was 18. Right. Which in my school was quite late. Yeah. I just thought like, I'm never going to be whatever anyone wants. And did you sort of not want to be seen as sexual? I think I kind of wanted to, I was like, this is not my, I can't, I didn't think it, I think it wasn't for me. So I'll be good at other stuff. I'll be good at writing. I'll be good at being funny. I don't need to be good at putting on makeup or being sexy. Um, Like boys would always be like, oh, I really want to get with your friend who was like a singer in a band and really beautiful and had her hair cut by like some Tony and Guy person. And I just like the friend. So yeah, I think I was just like, this is not for me, but it doesn't matter because I'll be clever or quick. And so did that continue when you were at Oxford? One of my best friends at Oxford, she was also best friends with the guy I started dating. Um, We were all friends and I used to be really insecure. And I used to, I think I genuinely had a dream about being away for some reason and then coming back and then being in bed together. I was really sure that he would fancy her. Um, I was like convinced that he fancied her, but I think that's because I fancied her. And I blamed both of them for it. Whereas at the time, I really don't think he did. But it kind of coloured my whole, all my relationship. In terms of the boyfriend I had being attracted to other people, I would do a lot of stuff to make him jealous. Right. Um, because I think I, I feel like his jealousy would confirm like his attraction to me and our relationship. But also I think like I was looking elsewhere. So I wanted that to be okay. So it was like you were constantly sort of sort of working out who you were and your sort of queerness around that. And I guess part of it was sort of working out the, the bisexuality part of it, because I think that sometimes the stories, not for everyone, obviously, but it can feel easier if you're like, oh, well, I'm gay. I understand that I'm gay. Like for me, it was like, oh, I, I'm only attracted to women. I've never been confused by a guy unless I've been like, oh, he's, I'm, you know, I'm kind of attracted to him, but I've never... Th- felt anything more than that but I think sometimes when you're bisexual and certainly by talking to more bisexual people and from some of the correspondence that we've been getting in from listeners it does feel like there's an extra thing to juggle if you're bisexual because it doesn't fit neatly into a box yeah I think that's definitely true and I think the way that you're I mean maybe people do have like I'm more inclined to be sexual with this gender or Mm -hmm. not sexual with this gender or feel romantically about this gender but I think the way that we're conditioned to feel about same-sex relationships and the way that I was at the time and as a child was like so rarely positive so Mm -hmm. it's already like mired and all this like guilt and shame and like does not compute so by the time you're addressing it you're so likely to like devalue it and deny it and think this is not a thing if you also happen to be attracted to the guy that you're dating or having sex with you're like well this is just a weirdness and um yeah I've also spoken to bisexual women who they're just like it's just something I'm not going to deal with I just I'm just going to put this away until later because oh me too yeah I know I've got friends that sort of yeah like sort of long into marriages over a glass of wine sort of said to me I think I'm probably bisexual, but I I don't know how to sort of deal with it. And it's not necessarily that anyone needs to deal with it. It doesn't, you know, you don't need to do anything. And you can be in, you know, a very happy marriage with a man and still be a bisexual woman. But there can be a cloaking of shame around it all and confusion, which I think can make it even harder if you're attracted to more than one gender. So I'd love to move on to your stand-up. So I've seen you do stand-up lots. I think I saw a preview of Venus, quite an early one. I really like how you describe yourself. Uh, I, I read this, uh, that your favorite things are breaking hearts, taking names and telling jokes with the confidence of a cis, straight, middle-class white man. I like yeah. that. Yeah, thank you. I thank like you. that a lot. It's something we all have to trick ourselves to do. I mean, maybe not trick ourselves. It's nice when we, we actually believe our own bullshit, um, mm. which I think I'm starting to do now. But I think most 
comedians, I'd, I'd say most female comedians will relate to this. Also, I am going to drop a truth bomb now mm-hmm. to you, Great. Susie. I don't think we met in the Guilty Pleasures tent at a <gasps> music festival. I think we met at the comedy store <gasps> sometime before that. Maybe a showcase for your agent, or maybe it was like a charity gig, but I know that Ivo was also performing. Yes, I think and you're right. I I mean, this is going to be like how it was for me at the start of the podcast when you said nice things about me. I remember seeing you. And I think it was almost definitely an all-male lineup. And I was just like, I just literally couldn't believe you existed. <laughs> that's nice of you to say. I, was just like, well, I hope that's in a positive way, not like, geez, how does that comedy exist? It was honestly the worst comedy I'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were just brilliant. You were great. You were great. And you were like, you were doing that as in like, not. I, it sounds shit to be like, you were doing it with the confidence of a white man because it was just meant so much that you were there and like you were great. And I think that is a big pressure and anyone who doesn't feel super visible or happens to be representing something that like, yeah, I know it's a huge pressure that if I'm not great, people will be like, oh, I guess that's what all female comics are like or what all gay comics are like. It's like a big pressure to think that you're representing something when you're just at work. But I think it was just like, she's great. And I was like, really, I was like, cool. Uh, but I don't think you talked to me outside. So that's fine. You did talk to me. You were nice. You were nice. But like, you just didn't know who I was. Well, I was probably just like, hello, goodbye. Because as we've said before, I'm not the version that I am on stage. I'm far more awkward as anyone that was listening that has waited for me after a show will be able to confirm. Because I'll be like, yeah, do, do you want a photo? Do you not want a photo? You've got your phone. Do you want... A, why would you want I'll a photo of me? I'm so sorry. You, here you go. <laughs> yeah, it's very... Um, yeah, I, I hope I was very nice, but probably quite awkward. Um, but you must feel a certain amount of pressure now because, you know, you had this really sort of red hot show in Edinburgh that then did really well at the Soho Theatre again. You know, you got sort of the best thing that you can get out of the festival as a newcomer, which is getting a nomination for the best newcomer at the Fringe. Was there a sense of weight of you wanting to be the authentic version of yourself, to speak as a queer woman? You said about the show that the queerness was essential to the show and how people receive it. Also, you're obviously a black woman. Was there a weight But when deciding what to do your sort of debut show about? Yeah, it's like, I think I'm still like, I, I wouldn't say I'm still completely okay with it. And I think a lot of like, when you're building the show, you're like, how's the show going to work? How's it going to fit together? Mm-hmm. And I think there was a version of the show where I said really late on that I was queer, because I was like, it's not important. I used to do comedy when I first started doing comedy and not mention that I was black, which I don't think you need to do is literally just like, hello, I'm black. But in the Venus and like definitely in lots of my standup, I have a thing where I'm like, I'm a triple threat minority. These is, this is all my stuff. And mm-hmm. people get it straight away. It's sort of a shorthand to going, I know this about me. You need to know this about me. Now I can just get on with talking about what I want to talk about. Yes, exactly. I was just like, boom. Like, and I found that really freeing the first time I started to do it to just be like, here's the stuff. And then I don't have to be like, oh, she's finally mentioned it. The black queer elephant in the room. But in a version of the show where I didn't talk about um, because I wasn't like being super queer when I was a kid and some of the show was about me as a kid it felt like it was like a sexy bombshell like I didn't want to be like right. which I think it's fine it's fine to hold stuff back and it's fine for like comics or performers to be queer and not mention it if they're not ready to um but I didn't like the sense that I was like it was gonna say kind of do something for the show at like 40 minutes people would sit right. up and be like oh and she's uh queer I didn't want it to be like a narrative thing but yeah talking about it making sure it was part of the show and making sure it was like a fuller picture of myself that I've ever given it people on stage meant that every time I said it and the material got better and I like fell in love with the show more I'm getting like prouder and more proud of myself and like enjoying myself and enjoying being funny and like taking control over what I'm saying about myself more so I think it was yeah really healing and good to be able to do that and also for lots of my family to see me doing that who did not know I was queer? Well, I remember seeing you maybe like within the week that your mum had seen the show for the first time. Oh, <laughs> and you sort of came out on stage, but that was also how you came out to your mum. Is that right? That is correct. I came out to my mum. I came out to my mum on the same day that Black, on the day after Pride, <laughs> the day of Black Pride. Um, and I invited her to, to a preview of Venus, my show. And I was like, I'm going to come out to her because in the first 15 minutes is me saying that I'm queer. Oh, the other 45 minutes while you, once you got that bit out of the way, you must've been like, oh, I really, <laughs> No, but I was like the energy of the show. I mean, obviously the energy of that 
will just carry me through. Like I'll just be like, I have to finish the show. I can't. I think it felt like this is where I'm powerful or more powerful. And so it's the most powerful position I can put myself in where I can't be interrupted. Although Mm -hmm. my mum and her friends don't necessarily follow that rule of showbiz. I can't be interrupted. (laughs) I'm doing my thing. I have status and this is, this is how I want to say it. Yes. But it was terrifying. And also about two minutes into the show, my mum was like, oh, I quite fancy a cocktail. So try to leave the room. And I was like, you, you have to be here for the first 15 (laughs) minutes. Like in 20 minutes, get yourself a cocktail. But but also do it, do it before the show. You've been here for half an hour. Yeah, don't do <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but yeah, it turns out to be a pretty solid technique. I came out to my auntie in Edinburgh with a show. And how was your mum? Like, I, I sort of know your mum a bit because she's been to see me a bunch of times in Edinburgh, which was always lovely. Yeah, and she's a super fan. Oh, it's so sweet. It's so sweet. It's so lovely. Um, but how was that sort of moment afterwards when you came off stage and you knew that you'd just shared this big thing? It was really, really scary. I was firstly like shaking with the adrenaline of been like, I've shown a show that's not quite finished to, I don't know, 12 people. I don't know how many people there, 20 people yeah. in this weird preview. Um, and you've got all of that, like, oh, I've done it. I've got through the hour. Um, but also I was just like, now I have to, and I think people were like trying to say stuff, which usually after a preview, I'm quite hungry for like, what did you think? Did this work? Like yeah. I want anyone who's willing to give me feedback, but I couldn't really listen to any of them. No, of course. I was just like waiting for my mum, waiting to see what would happen when my mum mm-hmm. came up to me. And she kind of like, oh, she kind of walked up to me and like the show had been in a basement and I'd come up and I was sitting at a table with like a pipe that someone had got me. And she sort of like grinned at me. And she went like pansexual, eh? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was just sort of like, yes. Like if I was like a dog, I'd have had like my tail between my legs, but had like the sort of thing. And she was just like, okay. Like there was no conversation about it, but it was kind of, she was just completely normal about it. I, I did have a later proper conversation with her about it because that day it was just, I was just so relieved that everything was normal. Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. I just was so relieved that like there wasn't a, thing you must have felt a lot lighter like physically lighter I felt so it was amazing she like drove me because she it was a London preview so she drove me to my house and then like because she constantly wants pictures taken as you will know because after the show she'll have made you (laughs) take pictures with her I've had some pictures with you mum sure um so she made me take lots of pictures with her and then I was like I've told my mum and I was so scared of it getting out to her some other way, like her listening to this podcast and it was done. And I went to um, her upstairs, which used to be a gay bar in Camden yeah, yeah. For, black, for the Black Pride after party. And I was just like, this is amazing. I'm like free. I'm like light. I could be, yeah, it's fine. Um, and the time that we had a conversation about it was when I couldn't think of a good way to tell my very religious auntie that I was queer but right. she was coming to Edinburgh to visit with my nephews, the, the boys. And uh, I was just like, well, she'll just see the show and she'll find out the same way my mum did. But I was like, that might be quite a shock. So I texted my mum and was like, do you think my auntie will be okay with like all of the content? I couldn't even really talk about it. I think, yeah. sex and, I think sex and sexuality is not something that we discussed in my family, partly because culturally I don't think it's so much of a thing mm-hmm. to be open but also because everyone being Christian it's not something that you're encouraged to consider as an option right and sure. my mom was just like she was like I think it will be fine but like I'm always like I've always been super proud of you and I like got an open mind and I don't care what other people say so I don't think you should be worried about doing it oh that's so lovely that's made me <laughs> choke up a bit yeah it was oh god but oh, oh god the actual show where this happened when I came out to my auntie, both yeah. my mum was, uh, I'd say, 12 minutes late to the show. Uh, okay. My auntie was 20 minutes late to the show, which meant that both, also my agent and my director were in, both like terrified for me because they knew that this was the show where this was going to happen, but also meant that my auntie missed the bit of me being like, hey, this is what I am. We'll all we'll get on board. Let's do it. And like just came in for the bit about me talking about lesbian pornography. And... <laughs> <laughs> porn stars called Ebony Enema so I was like you really dived in at the deep end due to your utter disregard for punctuality (laughs) (laughs) and how are you feeling now because that was in the summer I found and I can only speak for myself but I found that sort of you know saying stuff in front of an audience has really I've become a lot 
sort of prouder for want of a better word because I tell people about myself you know in normal times I gig sort of five or six nights a week and I'm constantly out and I'm very comfortable out but I think saying it on stage has really helped that have you found that I think it really has I think it's because I never really expected that anyone would get me like I said before that I didn't really expect anyone would think I was like a sexual prospect but I just thought like I'm too weird like this is too specific no one else will get it and even if like I don't think it should have to be like a sexy thing like oh I'm queer or I'm like a black like there are loads of black queer people which is amazing and some of them come to the shows and there's that Mm -hmm. recognition or people have like a daughter or a nephew or a niece like people get it and people get what it's like to feel different and people get what it's like to have like a secret crush or have your heart broken or just like you know be out of step or like too enthusiastic so I think saying it and being like this is gettable yeah totally as well as maybe formally painful and we can laugh at it has been really 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 amazing oh I completely agree with that and I think that that's one of the great privileges of doing this job is that I get to say things and I often think when people laugh it's some people in the room are going oh yeah me too and other people going oh I I don't that this isn't me but I kind of like where it's going tell me more and that's yeah it's always been a a great source of sort of comfort for me especially when I've spoken about things on stage that are much harder that there is something lovely about knowing that people are sort of connecting with you and people have experienced similar things yeah you don't feel as alone it's just yeah it's beautiful I think so too now Sophie thank you so much for coming on the podcast I do really really appreciate it I ask every guest the same question at the end of the show and um, I would like to know if you could ring and let's say let's say Sophie who was uh, in love with that teacher that was sort of desperate mm-hmm. to get her attention in school. Um, if you could pick up a phone, what advice would you give her about what's to come? I think when I was in love with that teacher and I was about to, like I was loving English and French and going to go off and start my life. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd already done it sort of like I'd been like a really nervous, like not cool bookworm kid. And I was like, I can stop now. I finally like I have friends. I know what I'm about. I'm good at this thing. I'm done. Like I don't need to keep finding out stuff about myself. I don't need to keep growing. Like, thank God I'm not that person I was when I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And I think I would tell myself if I could pick up this phone, my head, it's an 80s style phone for some reason, even though I wasn't alive. (laughs) um, (laughs) I just feel like you've got so much more like there's so much more it's fine to be scared and insecure and like not know everything about yourself because you don't and the stuff that you still have to discover is really really exciting and you'll wish that you discovered it sooner so it's great it's great that you're good at stuff and it's great that you feel like you have friends (laughs) like this is exciting but there's so much more and you shouldn't shut yourself off to it because you're scared of the change I mean, a perfect place to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Sophie. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Sophie. I think she's brilliant. Look her up on Twitter and Instagram. Go and see her. She's just brilliant. She's such an exciting voice in comedy at the moment. Um, thank you for listening as ever. Um, if you haven't listened to the rest of the episodes, go back and have a listen. There's lots of great stuff there. I'm really proud. I'm really proud of all the shows that we've put out. If you want to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com and I'll see you next week. Bye.